Thomas Mayer, welcome back to Karma. Thanks, Paul. Good to be back. Well, Thomas, the last time we spoke, uh, there was great hope across the uh, nation for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. The uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart had been finalised. It was uh, on its journey to the federal parliament and it all went wrong. Uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull uh, had different ideas, as did the coalition government, about the journey towards a voice, uh, truth-telling, all of the issues that were raised in the Uluru Statement. And you might just like to uh, um, remind listeners what the statement contained and, and, and why it was so significant. Yeah, so the Uluru Statement was uh, what they call a constitutional moment. It was, uh, it was the culmination of 13 dialogues that happened all around the country um, and unprecedented. So this had never happened before, this type of series of meetings. And each of those meetings in many different places in Australia elected delegates that came together in the heart of the country and at Uluru. Um, the meeting was at the Yulara Resort in the Uluru meeting place. Uh, there was around 300 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And uh, after three days of discussions and debate, we reached a consensus that said, we want voice treaty truth. And that's contained in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Mm. The... Um, the Treaty and Truth part is a, a Makarata Commission, so it's about uh, you know supervising a process of agreement making and truth telling to the nation. And the key proposal that is important to both of those other things is to give us a voice, you know, a voice to use the truth um, and to tell the truth about what's happened. Um, a voice to the federal parliament, you know, the the main decision makers in the country about um, to affect the decisions that are made about our people before they're made. And that'll require a referendum. But um, sadly, uh, the last time I, I spoke to you, the uh, the coalition, the, the Turnbull government at the time, and, and Morrison has echoed uh, his uh, sentiments. So they said that this was not something that the Australian people would support. And they said that this was like a third chamber to parliament. So really they were trying to scare the rest of Australia um, that this thing would have too much power, this voice. Um, everything that he said was false. Um, uh, the, it wasn't a third chamber to parliament that we proposed. And also, um, certainly from the travels that I've done since then and, um, and from polling that has been done, a majority of Australians will support this and we can win it. Mm. Thomas, um, again, you know, great disappointment, uh, the reaction of the uh, Turnbull government and, as you've just alluded to now, the Morrison Coalition government uh, continuing on. Uh, just to put the, the, uh, the formation of the wording of that uh, Uluru statement from the heart, I mean, it wasn't a group of blackfellas coming together for tea and cakes. There was some pretty heated discussion and debate about what would be in the final document. Oh, absolutely, because we came from many different places, you know. Uh, we came from uh, different levels of healing, you know, and uh, different levels of impact of colonisation, um, different perspectives. You know, we, we come from different language groups, you know. And so, um, of course, there, and different political ideologies amongst us as well. So um, it, it's a natural thing that um, 300 human beings coming together to talk about the biggest picture reform that we can possibly talk about in a country um, are going to have difference of opinions. Um, but that's not the, the most special thing about what happened at Uluru. The, the special thing about it was that only 20 people disagreed um, and walked out on the second day, but around... 
270 remained, um, finished that discussion, and then came up with the Uluru Statement. And they're, they're very eloquently put and, um, and, and well detailed and specific about what we want. And the main thing, again, is having a voice. We want to affect the decisions that are made about us. We want to make our own decisions in our communities. Thomas, uh, some of the mines, um, the people that attended, uh, I mean, there was a great cross-section of, uh, as you've suggested, uh, you know, people from all walks of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander life, but also uh, Aboriginal academics who've walked in two worlds and understand whitefella law. Well, that was really special about it you know i mean we didn't only because we came from so many different places and perspectives and political persuasions you know different beliefs all of that came together um and we had time to work on it we had the information that we needed to understand those different places that we were from um but we also had those those some of our mob that knew their stuff knew international um, public law, you know, we're experienced in it. I mean, we've come from a, we've come a long way as a people. You know, we've got some really smart, well-educated, um, and qualified people now, and so all of that experience, all of the experience of heartbreak, all the things that we've tried in in our different communities, and also that knowledge came together as one, and um, and really produced something really special. So, Thomas. Here we are today, following the disappointment. What has happened? I mean, I know across the country there was great, great disappointment at many different levels, right down to the, you know, com- remote community level. People thought this was our best shot at, at actually en- engaging at the level that we need to engage. It still is our best shot. Um, when I was here last, I think it wasn't long after Malcolm Turnbull had said no. Mm. Um, we did not take no for an answer. Um, I continued to travel the country with the Uluru Statement. Others continued to work on it. We had a grassroots movement. We had a protest that I think it was after we I was here last time. We organised a protest at, um, at Malcolm Turnbull's electorate. Uh, three Gurindji people came and joined me. We had Rosie Smiler, um, Double R or Rob Roy and um, Jeremy Frith. Um, went all the way from Kalkarindji to Sydney to talk to a huge crowd gathered at, at King's Cross there in Turnbull's electorate. And then we went and door knocked with all of those people that came to support us. Um, we went to, you know, through the to, through Grafton, through to Tasmania, um, you know, the Flinders Ranges, uh, to um, a, an elders meeting of the Noongar people, um, just continued to build that and a lot was done on social media. And what we managed to do was, where we had very little political support from either of the major parties, uh, we now have a Labor um, Party commitment um, in this election that if they win the federal election that's coming up uh, on the 18th of May, that in the first term of government, they will take this voice to a referendum. And that is our great chance, like in 1967, to take a huge step for our people and enshrine our voices um, and see that we're able to affect the decisions made about us because we have a collective of First Nations choosing their own representatives. It's a really strong voice that we can set up here. So we've come a long way. Thomas, there are now uh, obviously uh, a number of uh, Aboriginal people in the federal parliament, um, more numbers than, they're not great numbers, but it's far better than what uh, what has been there in the past. Uh, um, those 
uh, Aboriginal uh, leaders obviously uh, advising um, the opposition leader and have been for some time, um, uh, you know, about the voice of Aboriginal people. So just to have, uh, um, you know, men and women uh, at that level of uh, whitefella politics uh, is a bonus. But the journey, uh, bearing in mind what you've just said, the the Labor commitment, um, we do know that over historically there have been lots of promises made to First Nations Australians that haven't come to fruition. How confident are you feeling about this particular and, and where will it go from there? I am more confident than ever before because I think that we learnt lessons from those broken promises before. The Uluru Statement, and I encourage listeners to, to look it up and read it, it is addressed to the Australian people. So um, the Barunga Statement and the Yakala Bark Petitions and the Larrakia Petition to the Queen, those other aspirational documents that we've had, those aspirational moments, uh, were made to prime ministers or to kings or queens. The Uluru Statement is addressed to the Australian people, which is why we didn't have to take no for an answer. And um, and it wasn't for them, it wasn't for Malcolm Turnbull, it wasn't for Scott Morrison um, to say no. It was for the Australian people. So I think we learnt that lesson. But if we have really learnt that lesson and we want this reform and we want to change the the structural um, uh, disempowerment of our people, then we need to fight for this. We need to have a people's movement. And that's what I talked about last time I was in. We need to continue to grow the groundswell of support so that if Labor is elected, that they deliver on their promise. And, you know, I mean, Bob Hawke promised treaty. He wasn't able to deliver because political expediency took him another way. You know, there was something that was more, there was more pressure on him to do something else and not give us a treaty. Um, but I wonder, you know, if there was a stronger people's movement, if we spoke up louder to say we want that, spoke up louder, then would he have had to deliver because it would have been too expensive for him politically not to? Mm. And we have to learn that lesson, and only the people can do that. Thomas, um, people power is very powerful. We've seen in major capital cities the, the power of people to close a city down almost. Um, but again... Uh, white Australia has become, over a number of years, um, disenfranchised with Aboriginal people marching on the streets demanding rights. The journey, uh, it's such a hard journey. And again, when we look at the plight of the First Nations Australians and many still living in poverty, uh, getting people together to voice their concern isn't easy. Um what what do you feel is, uh, I mean, the world has changed now. Social media is a great tool uh, to influence uh, government almost, uh, to influence anyone. It can have a major impact. So taking this long-running movement of uh, trying to give First Nations Australians a voice and some say in how they are managed and controlled, um, how do you see that going forward? Well... I would say that, I mean, it's interesting you say it's a long-running movement, because it is, actually. Um, a voice was first called for, really, by um, William Cooper in the 1920s, um, and that's how long we've been fighting for this voice. Um, but when you think about it, he also was a part of the Day of Mourning in 1936, 
um, calling for the same thing, you know, for a voice and uh, the ability to make decisions for our own people and, and to live with equality. Um, and, you know, there were less than 100 people, I think, in that protest uh, on Elizabeth Street in Sydney. Um, is it disenfranchised? Are non-Indigenous people? I, I don't think they're getting disenfranchised. I think we're actually growing. You know, I mean, in Melbourne, you have over 100,000 people on the street um, for the, you know, the protest uh, for the t celebration on the 26th of January, what many of our people call Invasion Day. Um, but at the same time, protest is very important, but it's not the answer because you can, I think we can reach a point where it's like, well, what do you want? And that is what's so special about the Uluru Statement. It's very specific. A constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice. Take us to referendum. Uh, walk with us. And, and let's do that. And then we'll have a national body that's able to take those steps to start closing the gap. In the absence of that, um, we're just so divided and, and we're being uh, exploited. You know, you've got a bureaucracy that, um, that takes a lot of money that has very little effect in our communities. Mm. Thomas, again, historically, we've seen with the previous coalition governments uh, the removal of ATSIC, uh, the Aboriginal mm. and Torres Strait Islander Commission, which was the, the first national body, uh, representative body for Aboriginal people. I mean, there was a lot of uh, um, negativity that was generated out of that and continues to this day almost. So mm. um, within the wider population, there uh, the the seeds of fear have been sown very very well. Um, the fear of what do the black fellas want, and and do we need to go with this? Yeah, that's a very good question because, okay, so John Howard opposed ATSIC uh, when he was an opposition leader. Um, Bob Hawke started ATSIC. When John Howard was elected, uh, he immediately started to demonise it. You know because there was misbehaviour within the ranks, and um, and. But, you know, there's misbehaviour in Parliament as well. What happens is you deal with the problem. You deal with the people that are, that are you know, not following the rules or the misbehaving. Industry. Yes, the banking industry, prime example, you know. Um, so they did not need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, this organisation was evolving. It was new somewhat. It was, um, you know, it had good people in there. They should have dealt with the people that were causing the trouble. Um, he also, I think there was another agenda to getting rid of ATSIC though. Um, he had an agenda of um, deunionizing us somewhat, you know, dividing us across the nation. When he got rid of ATSIC, some of the worst policy that we've seen has come since because there hasn't been a nationally coordinated and cohesive voice. I mean, John Howard did the same thing to unions. He tried to get rid of the Maritime Union of Australia to destroy the um the you know the unity of workers um he didn't succeed but he did succeed in deunionizing or or dividing um indigenous people so we've got to take that back divide and conquer has been a great tactic of uh, white fellow governments for the last couple of hundred years so again this movement of people that came together at uluru some very uh, intelligent, wise people, both uh, culturally and, again, uh, you know, people who walk in two worlds. I mean, in the last, uh, uh, you know, decade or so, we've started to see the beginning um, in the wider community of a, an acceptance and understanding that Aboriginal 
and Torres Strait Islander cultures have a little more to offer than what's been sold to them in the past. So there is uh, a degree of interest in wanting to know more, but at the same time, uh, uh, many of the um, institutions within this country um, aren't aren't prepared to go back and revisit the past. So the the truth in storytelling, all of these things, there are some pretty big blockers there. Yeah, well, that's right, and that's that's the importance of the the proposal for a Makarata Commission and the voice. You know, um, the status quo has not worked. The, the 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 institutions as they are have not have not done this job, this this unfinished business, and we need to do something different. You know, we need to do something that goes to you know the the decision making body of the country in Canberra. Uh, and that's why the proposal is as such. Anything less is not going to achieve that change that this country needs. So just going forward, again, I keep coming back to, uh, you know, if, if you're saying protest isn't the way forward, um, how can Aboriginal people across the country, wherever they are, remote or urbanised, how can they come together as a unified voice to make this happen? Protest is the way forward. Um, we need more people on the streets. We need to be more effective. I just think that protest alone is not the answer. We need to do things smarter. We need to set up this First Nations um, in national representative body uh, to speak at that other level um, and that those people are truly accountable to the people that are on the streets, You know, that are in the communities. That's the difference. I, I first... Um, realised when we were rallying on the streets about the way that communities were being treated in Western Australia, you know, the the cutting of funding, the cutting of services to try and shut down those communities and and remove our people from from where their their ancestors have been for sixty millennia. And I noticed that our protests on the streets, as as good as they may have been, um, were not enough to shift the decision makers in Canberra. We needed to be more sophisticated than that and we needed more resources, we needed to be connected better to other communities. Um, so protest is important, but we need to do these, set up these other levels. We need to build it. And then the constitutional reform, um, the enshrinement, is important to see that what we build does not get destroyed as John Howard did to Atsik. Thomas, you've travelled the length and breadth of the country with the Uluru Statement from the heart. What strength do you take over the First Nations peoples? I mean, there are so many different levels. It's hard for people who've never been to a, a remote community to understand how some people are living. And, uh, you know, as uh, we've heard, uh, lifestyle choice um, is lifestyle choice. But uh, there's a bit more to it than that, we know. But the strength and continuity of the oldest culture on earth is something to be proud of, not something to try and tear down. Yeah, that's it. I mean, this this uh, if we can enshrine the voices of First Nations in the Constitution, we're talking about accepting that 60 millennia of, of history, you know, this wonderful culture that survived for so long, um, and was and, and you know as Bruce Pascoe writes in Dark Emu was uh, was a, a f comparatively a peaceful um, you know very uh, socially 
um, cohesive uh, relationship with each other and the land, um, I mean, that's something that needs to be embraced. And the only way you can do that is by by giving power in the the most important document in this country, um, the the rule book that even politicians that uh, must follow, um, and that's the constitutional reform, the constitutional recognition that's more than symbolic but gives us a voice. Um, when we do that, you know, there's so much to gain for this for this entire nation, for every citizen, um, to proudly say that we are um, a collective of people a nation that has 60,000 years of history. Thomas, um, again, the significance of voting in this country. Many Aboriginal people say, well, why do I need to vote? Uh, I get nothing out of it. Constitutional recognition. What does that mean for me out in this community? What do I and my family gain out of it? Voting is the starting point. Yeah, well, one of the reasons I'm travelling down here at the moment is to encourage people to, to enrol to vote. Um, our, our elders fought for us to have a right to vote. You know, it wasn't just given to us. Uh, it was a matter of protest. It was a matter of walking off missions and saying we're being treated unequally. You know, we want a say in how decisions are being made. Um, and so really we, we, must, we must vote to respect what our elders have achieved for us, but also to continue to affect... Um, how we are treated. I mean, we're looking at a um, the difference between a government that has committed um, to deliver on the Uluru Statement versus one that has um, basically um, lied about the Uluru Statement. Um, the only way we can keep those politicians accountable for what they've said and what they've said they'll commit to is by voting. But especially um, in this circumstance, that if we do go to a referendum, we want all of our people in all of the communities to be to be enrolled to vote so they can vote yes um, to enshrine our voices in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. 